evening, Indonesia. I'm Doug Livingston. This is the Renewable Energy Hour, and uh, I'm afraid my uh, my guest co-host Chris Love is lost in action. I'm worried he's stuck on the road in the weather and didn't get back in time for for the show. Hopefully, he'll call in here shortly, and we'll get him on to join me. But in the meanwhile, I'm on my own. Uh, the planned show topic for this evening was really. Uh, to at least start off uh, about the implications of the changes in the CPUC rules for what's commonly referred to as rooftop solar, although it doesn't have to be on a roof. What they're really referring to is modest to to small-sized, privately-owned solar systems that are offsetting a load on-site and overflowing backwards onto the grid, which is pretty much any residential solar system um and many many commercial systems as well um if you haven't been listening to the show lately you you may not have heard a number of shows over the previous year where the utility lobby was clearly pushing hard on the california public utility commission cpuc for the rest of the show um to change the rules on net metering and and they are mandated to review the rules and make adjustments to them according to you know how things stand at the time they're making the rule changes and the utilities are saying oh it's gonna it's it's uh causing people who don't do solar's bills to go up and actually i've seen plenty of evidence that the exact opposite's true that solar has reduced the cost of electricity it would have been much worse if all the rooftop solar hadn't gone in in the previous 20 years um we have shaved off the peak demand which was the most expensive electricity of all that's the weekday afternoon particularly in sunny summertime weather was by far the most expensive electricity in California and pretty much everybody is on or soon to be on time of use rate structures that see those high prices during the peak demand times but those peak demand times have been seriously shaved down Um, so my guess is most people uh, have seen a reduction in their bill because of all the solar on the grid being able to meet the demand during the most critical times. Um, at any rate, uh, in mid-December, the CPUC, after their fourth attempt to change the rules and four waves of public outcry against how outrageous the rule changes they were suggesting were, each generation of new suggestion, new proposals were less poison pill loaded than the one before. And the last one really only has one major poison pill in it. Uh, but it's still going to affect rooftop solar. And my guess is the demand for uh, privately owned net metered grid tied solar and wind systems is going to go way down once this takes effect. Um, it, I, it, I guess that's the, well, first of all, what are the, what's that poison pill? And that poison pill is you will no longer be credited at the retail rate for solar that you don't consume on site. Solar power you produce that you don't consume on site at the time it's produced. 
So, you know, if you're running your pool pump and the solar's power is going into the pool pump, you're offsetting retail price power. Uh, so that doesn't change. But if you're away from home, for example, and working during during the day and not consuming much at home, and that's when your solar puts out all its power, all the stuff that doesn't get used by you at the time you're producing it historically has gone backwards onto the grid, generating a retail credit for you to consume later at night on the weekend in the wintertime. In fact, it was a one-year net metering, so you could build up an excess in summer and consume it back in the winter, and that was at the retail rate. But now it's going to be, you know, down in the neighborhood of five cents a kilowatt hour credit instead of, you know, 20 or even 30 cents a kilowatt hour credit. Uh, I think I think on average it's probably about a quarter of the price it used to be. And so that's a significant disadvantage for people putting in solar in the grid-tied world. Mind you, this is a grid-tied show and not an off-grid show. Uh, our last show was largely focused on off-grid, but uh, that that's where our roots were. But grid-ties where most people are looking um, just because we're unusual and had we're early adopters of off-grid solar and have so much rural space. Not all our shows are off-grid. And not all our shows are grid-tied. At any rate, um, that's the biggest poison pill. Um, that in and of itself doesn't kill rooftop solar, but it'll seriously reduce its uh, its uh, cost-effectiveness, uh, raising its simple payback time substantially. Um, there are a couple things that might happen for the people who do go on the grid in terms of how they design the systems. Uh, one is that, you know, it used to be pretty reasonable to design your system to produce, you know, 80% of your net annual consumption. Uh, I generally didn't want to go much higher than that because it's quite likely that you would overproduce during... Uh, well, uh, you know, there's a certain amount you can't net meter away and it doesn't make it sense to make it that big to net meter away the stuff you can't net meter away and uh and the other is weather varies from year to year and if you produce more than you consume in a year then then you essentially are donating that to the grid you don't get much compensation for net annual excess even on the old rules but for daily annual daily excess um you were you used to get it at the retail rate, and now it's essentially at a wholesale rate. Uh, so one of the impacts I can imagine happening is people will design their systems for 40-50% of their annual consumption instead of 80%, so that the system's producing so much less that you're much more likely to be consuming it as it's produced. And and that way you'll get to value it at the retail rate and it'll have just as good of a payback. It just won't wipe out as much of your bill. Um, there'll still be times where some will get overflowed onto the grid at the wholesale rate, uh, but not as much when you design systems smaller. So that's one thing I expect this new role will impact besides people not doing solar at all is that people will be doing smaller systems, both of which are bad in my mind for the global trends and the needs of the world. Um, uh, the other thing I imagine is that uh, 
more people will put in batteries so that in whenever their system is overproducing, it can be programmed to charge up those batteries instead of sending it onto the grid. Um, and then consuming during off-peak hours, particularly during the evening when the rates are still high and the sun's not shining. So I expect this will put a bump up in the battery market, although batteries are still pretty crazy expensive and, and puts a crimp in the economic payback to have batteries at all, in my mind. At any rate, um, all is not doom and gloom if you're roaring and ready to go. Uh, this rule does not go into effect until April 14th. So you have until April 13th to get your ducks in a row. If you get a system, and I'll talk about what's needed in order to have yourself established and locked in in just a minute, but if you're locked in by April 13th of this year, then you will have 20 years grandfathered in under the old rules with that retail rate and the old positive pretty good return on investment. It's probably too good. I, I agree that, you know, getting compensated at the retail rate for a, what's supposed to it claims to be a for-profit utility. I'm not sure such a thing should really exist. But uh, but if you're going to justify having for-profit utilities, it's not reasonable to require them by law to buy their product at the same rate they sell it at. That's, that's just not realistic. And that's what the original net metering at the retail rate was doing. And it was doing it to encourage solar, which we needed to do. We wanted to build up the industry, increase the scale so that the price came down, which it did. And I think it's reasonable that we not be compensated at the retail rate. I don't think it's reasonable that we be compensated at the coal rate, uh, which is basically what's happening, or the natural gas rate. Um, at any rate, if you can get your ducks in a row by April 13th, uh, then, then you will be grandfathered in under the old rules for 20 years. So that's motivation for you to get moving because that's a pretty substantial advantage to have 20 years under the old rules instead of the entire life of the system under the new rules. Um, um, ooh, I scrolled down too far. Um, Incidentally, this is commonly referred to as NEM3. We're currently running under NEM2. There's still lots of people out there under NEM1. And NEM is net energy metering. That's a reference to a renewable energy system that's grid-tied and can feed back onto the grid. Um, uh, one of the things I... Well, there are a whole bunch of different issues, and actually a great place to, to go to review some of the things, that's what I'm using as a, as a guideline for this, is uh, solarrights.org, Solar Rights Alliance, uh, under their Frequently Asked Questions section. Uh, they have a bunch of great stuff about NEM3. Um, it... If you want to increase your system size by 10% or 1 kilowatt, whichever is more, um, you'd be forced on to NEM3 if you already have a system. 
Um, and actually, I think they're they're a little misleading in their statement. I believe utility PG&E does not care if you increase your solar array by 12%. It's if your inverter increases by 10% or more that kicks in this rule. 10% or 1 kilowatt, whichever is more. Um, that would cause you to move on to uh, the new rules. So if you somebody who's got an existing system and wanted to expand it and can easily do so, please do so before April 13th um, or before April 14th. Um, if you want to add a battery, this rule doesn't affect that at all. If you've got a system that can, that can easily have a battery added, uh, as long as your inverter size doesn't change, that will not affect uh, your old NEM2 or NEM1 status. Instantly, people on NEM1 and NEM2 were on a 20-year grandfathered in under those rules status. So if you put your system in last year, you've got another 19 years before you would be switched to NEM3. But if you put your system in, uh, you know, in 2004, you're going to be forced on to NEM3 next year. Uh, and there's not much you're going to be able to do about that. Um, actually, it's inter that's interesting. They do not address that in this list of issues. I wonder if you are on... NEM1 from 2004, if you did a significant change, like added 20% to your inverter size or with a bumped up solar array, you could probably still apply under NEM2 and get locked in for, for 20 years, but I'm not positive on that. You better talk to the lawyers. Um, if you... Uh, have solar and sell your home, the new owner will take over the remainder of your lock-in period. That's an interesting little tidbit that if you're selling your home that you can be able to reassure the new buyer that they're on the on your old rules for another nine years or whatever it is your system has on the old rules. Um, uh, what's more curious is uh, what is needed to establish that you're locked in under the NEM2 in terms of the April 14th deadline. And according to Solar Rights Alliance, uh, you have, you or your solar provider has submitted a complete and correct interconnection application to your utility. Of course, around here, that's going to be PG&E. This does not apply, by the way, to Ukiah Municipal Utility or Healdsburg Municipal Utility. Um, and uh, it does affect uh, SCP, although SCP could voluntarily increase the rates that they provide for solar, uh, but a big chunk of your bill, if you're on SEP, is for the for the PG&E transmission costs, and and so the rates will change for you, uh, even if you're on SEP. Um, but uh, you have to have. 
provided a complete and correct interconnection application to your utility and you have to have signed a contract with a solar provider according to Solar Rights Alliance. Um, so if those two are done by April 14th according to Solar Rights Alliance, you are locked in under NEM 2 for 20 years and won't be on the new NEM 3 rules. So you do not have to have it installed and signed off by April 13th. Um, but you do have to have a signed contract with an installer and have an, a complete and correct interconnection application. So you want to get that application done and into the utility. Uh, so if there are any errors, you'll have time to get them corrected, get the, uh, get the information they think is missing or whatnot. Um, that's actually a pretty convoluted application now. It used to be pretty straightforward and simple, but it's gotten more complicated. And, uh, and so most people are relying on their solar installer to do that for them. Uh, they're used to it. Uh, but that does bring up a curious question, which I, which I sent an email off, uh, just a couple days ago to Solar Rights Alliance is, well, what about the people who are qualified owner builders, meaning you don't have a contractor's license, you're not a professional solar provider, but you want to install solar on your own residence, which is legal in California. It's legal in most states, not all, but most states. Um, you can do work on your own home without a contractor's license. You still have to pass, you know, you still have to pull a permit. You still have to pass the inspection to the same standards that the that the professional contractor would. So that, that deters some people right then and there. But, you know, if you're confident and qualified to do it, um, you can. Uh, but what they're going to tell you is sign a contract with yourself that you're going to install it. I'm guessing they're not going to accept that. And so there's an ambiguity in this little section of Solar Rights Alliance frequently asked questions on this topic. And my guess is that having actually paid for the equipment and having a receipt for the equipment that's on your interconnection application would would qualify that but you better check with the utility to to make sure that's the case otherwise you know the surefied guarantee is to actually have a signed permit um for the app for the system i mean a Actually, there's a possibility too. They might accept a simple permit application, but uh, but the one thing I'm sure would qualify if you're an owner builder doing your own system is a signed off permit, i.e., you've already installed the system by April 13th. And there's actually still plenty of time to put in a straightforward solar system in this time frame. So I'm hoping a lot of our listeners take advantage of that and do it. Um, they also have a link to uh, a consumer guide for finding a solar company. Although up here, uh, I bet you a bunch of their guidelines don't don't apply. And and we have uh, an unusual high number per capita of of solar contractors in this county, but uh, they're busy, and so it may be hard to find one. Um, Anyhow, that that's a 
that's one of my major topics for tonight. And I'm going to open up the phone lines in, in not too long and let people ask questions about this issue. And the other issue I wanted to talk about was, was big storage and how electricity storage can help grow the percentage of solar and wind and other renewables on the grid. Uh, we are currently bumping up against some issues that are holding solar back. Uh, early on, there was so little solar, it didn't matter. But one of the problems solar has is it puts out when it puts out, not when the grid supplier asks it to put out. Unlike coal and gas and nuclear. With coal and gas and nuclear, they can simply call the plants and say, hey, ramp it up, ramp it down, according to how much demand is out there. And so, you know, on a cloudy day, obviously, uh, they're probably going to buy all the solar you're producing. But on a, on a nice sunny day, when, when it's cool weather and demand's fairly low, we've already got plants that, you know, are being asked to shut down, solar plants that are being asked to shut down because the grid doesn't need it. Fortunately, all the gas plants have already been asked to shut down before that point. But uh, so we are offsetting an awful lot of CO2 emissions from fossil fuels, and California already doesn't use much coal. Every now and then we get into a pinch where we're not making enough electricity and have to import it from out of state, and that's about the only time we consume any significant amount of coal. Largely all of our coal is gone, and uh, our, our nuclear is almost gone, but even that's up in the air with, uh, with our current baseline needs. Uh, you may hear that term baseline. That's, you know, power sources that can produce when it's needed, uh, that can produce all night long, that can produce on peak demand times when the current existing generating capacity is not up to par. Um, natural gas, modern natural gas plants are really remarkable on that front. They can ramp up and ramp down in virtually no time. Coal plants and nuclear plants take a long time to ramp up and ramp down, but modern uh, natural gas plants do that very quickly. And so I expect we'll have some natural gas on the grid for quite some time in the future, but hopefully it'll only be used for those short-term adjustments until other, other uh, critters can ramp up or ramp down accordingly. Hey, solar plant, come back online. We need more. Um, we've shut down. At any rate, one of the things holding back putting more solar in is... The ability to store excess power, because if we put in more solar at this point, there'll be lots of times when the electricity from that solar plant won't be needed. And so it would be nice to be able to store it somehow during those excess times and spit it out later when the sun's not shining or the wind's not blowing, what have you. Um, and historically that's often been done with uh, gravity storage usually with water where they would take excess power from the grid and pump water you know from the bottom of the dam back up into the reservoir and use the hydro from the reservoir at off-peak hours or excuse me at you know times when the solar's not providing the demand let's put it that way now um, 
to to make up the difference. Uh, it's not incredibly efficient, but it's better than burning coal. It's better than burning gas. And in my mind, it's better than nuclear. Although there are some good arguments for nuclear. Um, I still don't think we uh, have that... Uh, that devil in the pocket quite yet um and barbara it's going to be a long time until there's a nuclear fusion in a commercially viable state which is much lower risk radioactivity wise and waste wise than fission which is what we've been relying on for the past uh good grief 50 years now at any rate um storage uh these days, the big focus of storage is, is in looking at batteries, although there are other gra ways to do gravity storage. Uh, we had a guest on uh, this past year who was designing a system that, you know, used a giant piston of, you know, stone uh, that would be a weight on top of a cylinder of water. And, and when there was excess power from the grid, it would pump water into underneath the piston of stone and slowly raise up that giant you know football field wide or more cylinder of stone higher and higher and higher and higher with whatever excess was available from the grid and okay there's no more excess it stops and then later on when there's not enough power supply on the grid they could allow it to reverse and let the stone piston start following and pumping, basically pushing water under high pressure underneath it through a turbine and generating electricity that way. There are a number of different gravity storage systems, not all of them even involving water. Um, uh, and uh, probably the, the most famous form of storage that's been in discussion in the last 10 years for the grid has been batteries. Um, and, and that's where I think much of the... Uh, you know, research and investment has been has been in chemical batteries. I'm, I'm a little nervous. Those are always going to be fairly expensive and and not long enough lifespan. But we're getting better and better, and and so I may have to eat my words on that front. I've been skeptical on batteries for 30, 40 years, having to work with them all the time. Um, and uh, you know, we were joking on our last show that. Uh, I always taught in my classes that I've been promised the miracle battery, you know, 27 times in the past 35 years. Um, and when the miracle battery finally does come out, I'm going to miss the boat by at least five years. And, and it looks like I did that. You know, it took me about five years to even think about uh, not insisting and talking and a client out of lithium-ion batteries after they started being a substantial thing. And in fact, I've installed a number of systems with lithium-ion batteries. I still talk most clients out of it on the sheer basis of how expensive they are. But they are really convenient in a lot of ways. They're not as expensive as they seem because they have so many, so many advantages in efficiency and longevity and whatnot. But when you crunch the numbers, you know... Apples to apples, they still, in my in my calculations, are more expensive than, say, lead-acid batteries, which are pretty damn expensive, and and especially in the long term, because you have to replace them more often than 
with a typical lithium-ion battery. There are some other options for battery storage that really only work on the large scale that are useful on a utility scale, although most utility-scale battery-based systems have been lithium-ion, but there, there are other exotic forms that wouldn't make sense on a residential scale uh, that people are looking at and are reasonable to consider. Um, and I'm hoping that on our next show, I've been working on them, we've been in communication, we didn't get it together enough to have them on this show, was a company uh, that does utility-scale energy storage, both gravity and hydrogen. And they're not focused on battery storage uh, on the show in two weeks, or if we can't get that together, maybe maybe four weeks. Uh, but to me, hydrogen is quite a viable option. It's not hugely efficient, but if it allows somewhere for the excess solar power to go and there's no demand for it and the plant would otherwise be shut down with 0% efficiency, hey, why not make hydrogen with electrolysis? It's much better than making hydrogen out of natural gas. And then you've got this really clean fuel that when it burns, its byproduct is water. That's the exhaust coming out the tailpipe is water vapor. Um, when you burn hydrogen or run it through a fuel cell. Either way, it's the same basic reaction. Uh, two, two H2Os plus one O2 makes, or excuse me, uh, two, two H2s plus one H2O makes two, I did it wrong again, two H2s plus one O2, two hydrogen molecules plus one oxygen molecule will yield two water molecules. Um, that's the reaction when we're extracting the energy from hydrogen. Uh, the opposite is true. We need water and an input of energy in order to make hydrogen and oxygen out of water. But we can do that with electricity. It's not hugely efficient, or if it is highly efficient, it's fairly expensive catalyst-based stuff. But uh, there are arguments that go both ways. But a curious phenomenon is happening. You have these, these big utility-scale solar power plants. Uh, I remember being astounded once when I was teaching solar classes that we often make the ra the, a ratio between the solar power nameplate rating to the inverter that's going to process that power. You know, that ratio is often, you know, 1.2 or something, meaning you've got, you know, 1,200 watts of solar for 1,000 watts worth of inverter. But wait a minute, doesn't the inverter have to process all the solar? Well, uh, the panels are rated under non-realistic conditions. And so they never put out, you know, in real-world conditions under full sun what they say they're going to put out. You know, it's it's largely a factor of how hot they are that that drops that down. And, you know, sort of on average, it's, you know, something like 15% lower than what they said they were going to be. So that was one reason why we talked about that ratio. And, and some people pushed it a little further. Some people were more conservative. And I had, you know, three guys in one of my classes who worked for a big utility scale company. And I said, you know, what do you... 
what do you guys do on your big systems? Because they were doing 250 megawatt scale systems, that sort of thing. Whereas typical residential system might be, you know, 3 or 10 kilowatts. Uh, you know, point. 0.003 megawatts instead of 250 megawatts. So it's a really different scale system. And uh, they said, we don't know. We'll, we'll, we'll call it lunchtime. And they called and they said, oh my God, we used, you know, we used a 1.55 ratio, meaning they had, you know, 50% more solar watts than they had inverter capable of processing. And I said, oh my God, that's crazy. You're going to be throwing away, you know, at least a third of your daily power production. Why do you do that? And they say, I don't know. And so they called their called their company again to get the answer for why they did that. And the answer was that the solar panels were were a relatively modest part of the cost of the investment for the overall equipment required to do this plant uh, and it turned out that you know the biggest investment they had was this you know 10 mile utility transmission line that they had to put in that only had a certain amount of capacity and they wanted that capacity as loaded as much as possible as much of the day as possible they didn't want to maximize the efficiency of you know the cost effectiveness of just the solar system they wanted to maximize the cost effectiveness of the solar system plus their huge investment in this transmission line and and so by putting in more solar than they could use they were chopping and throwing away a good chunk of their power in the middle of three four hours of the day but they were putting out pretty much the same amount of power all day long from you know an hour after the sun came up till an hour before the sun went down and producing the same amount all day long pretty much at the capacity of the transmission line they put in so they're fully using their transmission line and throwing away a third of their solar which was to them on on the economic analysis the most cost-effective thing to do and now we're at the point where we're not just throwing it away on that basis. We also have times when the solar plants are asked to shut down because there's too much power production on the grid and all the gas plants are down. You know, they've, they're throttling down the one nuclear plant left and there's still enough solar and wind jamming out there that there's more supply than they need and the grid can't handle that. They, they need you to... You know, they need at least some of the plants to shut down, so they rotate through asking which plants to shut down when. And, and we've come to the point where the plants have to put in some sort of storage, the big utility-scale plants put in some sort of storage in order to be viable because they don't want to waste you know, their investment by having it shut down a significant period of time. And the more solar that goes in, the more these plants are going to have to shut down because the power is not needed at the moment. And so that's what the need for storage is. And one thing I think makes an awful lot of sense, and, and there is some movement on this front, but I don't think enough, is that we ought to basically be taking those plants during those times that they're not utilizing all their power for sending onto the grid and be running electrolysis or fuel cells to make hydrogen. 
with the excess power that's not being used by the grid. And then you have this big storage tanks of hydrogen. Mind you, this is something that's viable on a utility-scale plant, not something I recommend for a residence, um, and something that's more cost-effective on that scale, too. Um, and you make that hydrogen, and then you turn around and make electricity with that hydrogen. I expect uh, in basically the same sort of turbine... Uh, that, that modern gas power plants use, slightly modified for the fuel of hydrogen instead of natural gas, but it's pretty much the same exact technology as a modern gas plant. You have one of those on site with the utility power plant. They can be made small and huge and multiples, so you can do whatever size generation you want of the gas-powered turbine generator. Uh, and... You've got that hydrogen on site. You don't have to transport it around the world. People are nervous about hydrogen because it is kind of explosive. Um, it gets a bad rep, but that's not the topic tonight. Um, and, and you could use that hydrogen to run gas turbines, burning the hydrogen and making water exhaust with no CO2 emissions. Uh, to to meet the demand at night, to meet the demand on cloudy days, etc. Anyhow, that that's a show I'm hoping we can focus on uh, in two weeks. And we got about 20 minutes left in the show, and I've been rambling on without my co-host. I hope he's all right. I haven't heard from him. Don't know why he's not there with me. Hey, Chris, hope you're okay. Uh, but I'm going to open up the phone lines, 895-2448, if you've got comments or questions on any of what we've been talk I've been talking about I'm the only one jabbering so far um, you have questions about uh, the implications of the new CPUC net metering rules for solar going into effect in April or if you want to talk about you know some form of storage to help stabilize the grid and allow us to put in more solar wind etc. 895-2448. And otherwise, you're going to hear this monologue of Doug rambling at you for another 20 minutes if you don't call it. <laughs> yeah, you don't want that. Um, so I'm hoping people have questions. You know, how, how can I do solar that quickly? And I can help reassure that you can get your solar in in that time frame. It's not that bad, particularly if it's not a complicated system. Um, or, uh, yeah, we, we, we talked an awful lot about, about the NEM3 rules. All right, we've got a call coming in. Let's make sure i got all the right buttons pushed. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. Hi, this doesn't have anything to do with what you've been talking about, but I'm just wondering... <laughs> did, did you hear me mention you earlier? <laughs> I did, yes, thank you. thank you. This is Barbara, if you heard me it mention is, yeah. Barbara. Yes, well, I was listening and I thought, I wonder if he's talking about me. Yeah, because we did, I did bring that up. Anyway, but tonight I'm just wondering how much energy do those little things like... Of the light on the TV set being on, the light on the flashlight that's being charged, flash the light on the telephones, all those little they're, 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 draws. It's wildly variable. Uh, 20 years ago, it was absolutely appalling. No one was paying attention to that. 
and and it didn't need to consume nearly as much as they were consuming. And I think you'll find that, you know, a phone, a cell phone charger plugged in, but not plugged into a phone, you know, was, was 5 to 20 watts. Oh, my gosh. And now it's, you know, a half a watt to 3 watts. And, and the same idea applies to modern standby appliances but it always cracked me up do you really need a light on an appliance to tell you that it's off you're right <laughs> um but leds consume so little power usually the culprit was the electronics that were on behind the led that was the wasteful thing and that just required a little bit of of uh an attention by the engineers to say hey this is an issue and in fact uh the feds are, are responsible for a good bit of that movement. Um, we, we called those things in the old off-grid days phantom loads. Uh, some yeah. people called them ghost loads. Uh, the, the, the feds, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, and the people re- responsible for Energy Star called them vampire loads, but they were all, <laughs> they were all appropriate analogies to something that was going to sneak up on you while you were sleeping and suck you dry. Um, <laughs> I like your analogies. But, uh, you know, vampire loads, ghost loads, phantom loads, you know, all those <laughs> words sort of bring that idea into your head. But but many of them are nowhere near as bad as they used to be. Um, and uh, so it's been less of a concern than it has been. God, I remember one guy, in, you know, 20 years ago who heard one of my classes talking about how bad these things were back then. And he went home and turned off everything that, that was a major consumer. And his house was still drawing like five kilowatts because he was a gadget guy. He had this big house and there were gadgets all over the house. And, you know, every one of them was five to 20 watts. And it added up to this huge number. It was ridiculous. Oh. Um, but now it's not so bad. Um, one fun little tool, uh, although it's, it's accuracy down on the real small level is not that good. But it's a really cheap little device. If you've got one of the older ones that's bad, you'll see that on this thing is uh, uh, the kill all watt meter. Kill hyphen a hyphen watt. It's a pun name. Yeah. And it plugs Huge. in. It plugs into a standard outlet, mm-hmm. um, and then you can plug your device in. And it'll tell you, you know, what the voltage is that you're running off of, what the amperage draw is, what the wattage draw is. And that's probably pertinent to what we're talking about right now. You can see, oh, my laptop, you know, when it's in standby, it's drawing 5 watts. Oh. Um, or, or what have yeah. you. What have you. Yeah. you. You can see those different things. And, oh, my God. My VCR consumes 25 watts. I've seen, I saw a VCR once that consumed 70 watts off. Oh. Uh, which is appalling, you know. Oh. Thank God there aren't VCRs anymore, but they were, they were eventually down to about 5 watts before they finally faded from the market. Um, you know, Mr. Coffee Machines that had a clock on them used to be, yeah. you know, 10 watts. Now they're like 3 watts. So um, anything reasonably new would be low. Would probably much lower, yeah. particularly if it has an Energy Star rating. That was one of the things they were focused on in getting the Energy Star rating, was what the standby draw was. 
Yeah. Um, so, but if I have ten little lights on, it might it up. might not be that much. And you probably have a meter in your house. I do. It was off because I had a power outage when I was gone, and the battery level dropped because it was raining, 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 and uh, nobody was here to deal with it. And so, but I got it back on. Okay, well, you can, you, you can probably see, you know, with all your lights off and make sure, you know, none of your appliances are running and your fridge isn't running and that sort of thing. Um, you can probably see what all those things consuming together are. Keep in mind, since you're off-grid, your inverter's probably consuming the biggest share of all of that. Oh. Your, your inverter probably... Probably consumes, you know, 15 watts just to be making 120 volts, even though nothing's using it. Oh, okay. Um, but you can't avoid that unless you put it into sleep mode, and I'm ner- and you don't want to put it. And most people don't want to use the sleep or the search mode anymore. No. There, there are too many appliances that are vulnerable to damage by the search pulse, and too many appliances that really need to be on all the time. Yeah. Okay. Well, it doesn't sound like there's anything I need to worry about too much. Uh, probably not. And, and one happy, happy, joy, joy is that, you know, one solar panel often takes care of all that stuff in an off-grid home. Might be s- several solar panels in a grid-tied home. Uh-huh. Um, you can still do things that help, like if you've got a entertainment system or you know any of these places where you have loads that really don't need to be on while you're not using them plug them into a power strip and turn off the power strip that was what we always used to do yeah i i do have my tv on a power strip but it's kind of um hard to reach the power strip yeah rearrange that so it's less hard to reach so you're more likely to do it right and then too so i've got this fire stick so when you turn the fire stick off the screen goes totally black. So you think the TV's off. Well, while I was gone for three weeks, the TV was on. <laughs> yeah. So mm. that's what drained the batteries and everything went kaflooey. Yeah, so it was 200 watts instead of 3 watts. Yeah. So watch anyway, out! Watch out for stuff like that. Yeah. So I, I brought the power strip a little closer so I could turn it off with the power strip and... Not worry about it being on still. Yeah, I've I've made that mistake a few times. I have a uh, a large monitor for my laptop that I use the large monitor, not the laptop's screen. Yeah. And uh, when I close my laptop down, the monitor goes blank, and you can't tell it's still on. I know it's deceptive. Same idea. One would one would think if it's totally black, it's off, and if it has a little red light, that it means it's on some kind of standby. But duh, the other way around. Anyhow, I, I encourage everybody to consider picking up one of those kilowatt meters. I expect a number of you know decent hardware stores around the county carry them. They're you know thirty bucks or so, uh-huh. and and they're really useful for getting an okay. idea on this sort of stuff. I will write that down. All right. Thanks a million, Doug. Sure enough. Take care, Barbara. Okay. Bye bye. So as you can see, you don't have to talk about the topics I was talking about already. I'll entertain anything related to renewable energy. Hello, caller. You're live on the air. 
Hi, Doug. I'm building an off-grid system in Mendocino, and I heard you say in a previous program that if you have several strings of panels, that each one needs to have a circuit breaker on it before it goes to the charge control? That's true, according to, to, the, to the code. So I have four, four strings, four strings. Of, four of four panels each. Can you tell me why that is? Uh, what they're concerned about is the conductors in the string itself. It, it Usually when you have a circuit breaker, you're nervous about, you know, power from the source of electricity feeding stuff outside. So at first glance, you think that's protecting the rest of the world from that string. When actually it's the reverse. They're worried about, say, you know, a branch goes through that string and causes a short circuit. If there were a backfeed from the battery bank or from other strings in the same array that are parallel together with it, they could all short through a short circuit in that first string. And so they want to make sure you have a circuit breaker on each string that protects the opacity of the conductors in that string. And the solar panels themselves are going to have a series fuse rating or reverse maximum reverse bias amperage on some super geeky spec sheets um, that'll tell you, you know, this is this is the largest fuse or circuit breaker you're allowed to use to protect this string. But do, okay. you, do you follow that? Say, say you had a short circuit in one string. You could have all three of the other three strings feeding power into that short. Well, here's what I don't understand. If you say a panel's in full sun and, you, and the wire's coming out of the panel short, as I understand it, the voltage goes almost to zero even though the current's peak current. In that panel. No, the, and the current goes to maximum, but the yeah. voltage goes to near zero in that panel. The problem is you've provided a path to short-circuit the other three strings, too. Well, Cause even... Because they're, they're parallel together. Even four strings of panels going through a short-circuit doesn't seem like it would... Oh yeah, yeah. The uh, you look at look at the ampacity ratings on your panel. That panel will the conductors in that panel will overheat, melt the plastic, and catch on fire. I see. Okay. So what uh, you with the the easiest answer for an off grid system is get yourself at least a four circuit breaker combiner box that has DC rated circuits, and. Uh, the ones I think of off the top of my head are from Midnight or Outback. And and the it, my panels put out about 7.1 amps. So what size circuit breakers? Uh, they're probably 15 amp is the the largest overcurrent protection device on those. But it should say on their spec sheet. Okay, thanks a lot. Sure enough. Take care. Bye bye. We got time for at least another call, 895-2448. I saw someone calling when I was answering that phone. Oh, there they are, probably back, or maybe a new one. Hello, Colin. You're live on the air. Hi. Um, so I heard your comment about um, not having um, your inverter on search all the time, and I have 
um, my I've always had my inverter. On so you've been you've been doing this for a long time, and you're off grid. Exactly. Okay. You probably don't have a lot of modern appliances. You probably intentionally avoided having appliances that really kind of need to be on all the time. You don't. Yeah. Do, do you have internet? Um, just on my iPhone. There you go. So you don't have you don't have an internet server or a modem. So there are a lot of things that you've managed to avoid all these years. So it's probably okay still for you. But watch out when you buy that new washing machine. A new washing machine, huh? Yeah, you could get in trouble. You could fry its control board. That new refrigerator, you could fry its control board. Well, hmm. Uh, how with the washing machine? How about if I just unplug it when I'm not using it? Or, or you know, have a switch for it. That's it's kind of hard yeah, on yeah. plugs to be constantly plugging and unplugging them. But yeah, 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 or, yeah, yeah. you could do that. Uh, you could do that. But if I need a new fridge, then that's going to be a problem. It could be. It could be. I'm not. I'm not saying it will be, but it could be. I've I've encountered people who had brand new fridges that, you know, died in three months, and uh-huh. we tracked it down to the. Well, actually, uh, uh, and and there's another thing is that the modern fridges have a small controlled circuit board that need to be on all the time, and if you turn them off. They're not working. Yeah. Hmm. So, um, so there's too many damn microprocessors in all of our modern electronics to be using a search mode. Yeah. Uh-huh. So how how if I have to buy another fridge sometime, um, how can I find out? Uh, how can I get one without one of those circuit boards that have have to be on all, on all of them. I I would suggest you buy another uh, another string of panels and take the inverter off the search mode. Uh, okay, so just the panels have gotten so cheap that that most people don't bother with it and don't risk hurting fridges and washing machines to save fifteen okay. watts of power. Okay, so what? When you say a string of panels, what is what do you mean by? A oh, string? I was just thinking of of the the smallest increment you could expand your array by. I have no idea what your are you on a twelve volt system? Uh, Twenty four. Twenty. And um, and I have um, eight uh, eight panels uh, and. Do you know what oh, panel? Another, do you know what panel you've got? N- no. Um, well, that's another question, and. Um, if if they're twelve volt panels, you've got two panels per string. If they're twenty four volt panels, you've got one panel per string. Oh, uh huh. Maybe I better talk to my solar guy about that. And but, uh, actually, you may have a modern maximum power point tracking charge controller, and your panels are at a completely different voltage from your battery. In which case, I can't know. Yeah. Okay. I should really discuss it with my solar guy this situation okay incidentally i have a trimetric and i so i don't need to buy one of those things that you the voltmeter that or the wattmeter right right that's a that's a pretty useful tool uh but keep in mind that it's not reading the ac loads it it's reading the the net battery amperage right right okay 
Okay, well, good. Well, thanks. Um, hey, thanks for that. You're very welcome. And as long, long as my, my fridge holds up, I'm fine. And when I'm not, I'll have to, when I get a new fridge, I'll have to make some changes. <laughs> All right. Okay, thanks a lot. Sure enough. Take care. Good night. And I should say good night to everybody else. We're getting close to the top of the hour. See you in two weeks. This has been a production of Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. KZYX, Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. You can find more content like this on our website at kzyx.org, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thank you for listening.